Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Lewis and Ann are speaking with Michael Schwarm, partner in the cannabis practice at Dwayne Morris LLP, one of the nation's leading law firms serving the cannabis industry. Dwayne Morris attorneys now represent businesses and individuals at every level of the cannabis supply chain. Their clients include state-licensed adult-use marijuana, medical marijuana, and hemp cultivators, processors, distributors, and dispensaries, both vertically integrated and those operating as standalone businesses, as well as industry investors. Michael knows where the bodies are buried, so to speak, which means he knows where the deals are and where the money is coming from. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our conversation with Anne, Lewis, and Michael. Michael. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. You want to get as close to that as possible. We always say, eat the mic. Um, otherwise, you Tastes know. Tastes delicious. Uh, well, I, I, tr- I try, you know. Um, it's funny. You and I sit on New Jersey Transit almost weekly, and we shoot the shit about what's going on in the cannabis industry. And you are one of the lead attorneys um, you know, in the cannabis space. And Dwayne Morris, over as, as KCSA has become a leading communications firm, you guys have become a leading law firm in the space. So how did you get into the space? Why did you get into the space? You know, what, what, what was that gestalt moment that you had that said, I want to bet my career on weed? Um, yeah, if, if we'd been having this conversation three years ago, you would have gotten a very different answer. Um, it was really a confluence of events um, as you had mentioned, Dwayne Morris was really, you know, one of the leading, if not, you know, the law firm, you know, large law firm to go into the space early. And, you know, we, the firm launched its cannabis practice probably about five or six years ago and publicly, I think, you know, four. Um, and I, you know, I was a reluctant participant at first. I went to the internal meetings, but wasn't really sure I wanted to bet my future on weed. Um, and then... You know, I started to mention to a, you know, a variety of my clients that we had this leading cannabis practice to gauge their reaction. And they essentially said to me, you know, funny you should ask. You know, we're trying to figure out how we, you know, cash in on this, you know, exploding industry. What, what kind of clients were these? Yeah, uh, they were, you know, you know, one was a data, data analytics company. One created, uh, you know, stock indexes. One was, you know, performed public relations uh, for, you know, the financial services industry. That was so, not us, by the way. No, it was not you. I mean, you know, it, um, you know, and, and, you know, consistently said, you know, you know, we think it's a really exciting industry. Really, at about the same time, I was, you know, asked to co-chair our family office practice that sits with inside our private equity practice. And as I started to go to... You know, these family office conferences, far and away, the most popular topic and the only thing people really wanted to talk about was, you know, was the weed business. And so, you know, it, you know, a, I would say it's either, you know, a light bulb or a lightning bolt, you know, hit me. And it was like, I'd be crazy not to, you know, try to cash in like everybody else in this industry, given the, the real competitive advantages that I have and, and probably will never see again being, you know, at the forefront of an industry with a very limited competition 
you know, it just was unheard of. So, you know, I had enough common sense. And you guys are, Dwayne Morris is, um, you guys are over 100 years old. How much resistance among the partners uh, was there when you, you know, kind of had this lightning bolt moment? And, you know, <laughs> did you have to get them stoned? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I will say, you know, people smarter than me really starting six or seven years ago, you know, started approaching firm leadership to say, can we do this? Can we do this? And it was, uh, no, we don't think so. No, we don't think so. And, you know, they systematically, you know, approached our, our bank, our, our landlord, our, you know, our malpractice carrier, you know, the, you know, the bar associations, and one by one, you know, got them comfortable. Um, and how, how about the mal- so malpractice carrier is interesting because I personally had been d- denied life insurance through KCSA, and I have it now, but we had a few carriers who said, not because I smoke cannabis, but because I work in the cannabis space, that they did not want to insure me. So when you were talking to your your professional service providers, how hard was it to get them to, to sign off? I mean, I, I think it took them a little bit of time. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, for better or for worse, was not part of those conversations. But, you know, from what I've heard, you know, it took a lot of convincing and a, and a very, very carefully crafted, you know, engagement letter. For all our clients, we attach the call memo to our engagement letter. You know, we put in there that it's you know it could be an illegal activity. Um, you know, there are limits on you know on the scope of engagements. It doesn't really, frankly, prohibit us from doing most of everything we're doing. But you know, it, you know, it is a it is the longest engagement letter that you know we have. We have a you know a far more rigorous intake procedure than any of their client base. We do. It's the only industry where we do background checks on all principles and if they're not if they don't come up squeaky clean and there's not a really good explanation you know for you know why there's a blemish you know the answer is no you know you know listen the last thing we want to see is you know a picture of a, of a client on the front page of the New York Post saying you know Dwayne Morris <laughs> Dwayne Morris client arrested for you know illegal activity so um, you know it, it's been a process but I think that people have gotten you know pretty comfortable you know we initially had some resistance in some of our you know more middle of the road, middle of middle America, you know, offices. But, you know, people have seen, you know, the, the growth of the practice. It's, you know, probably the, you know, since we started at zero. So, you know, anything is, you know, is rapid growth. But we're clearly one of the fastest growing practices in the firm, you know, albeit, you know, among our 14 industry verticals, we're, you know, probably the smallest by a large factor. But, you know, we all expect this to, you know, to continue to grow. We have certainly for at least the next several years a real competitive advantage on you know, over any new entrants into the space. Well, and there are all there are only a handful of attorney uh, law firms out there, right? You know, there's you guys. There's um, you don't have to mention. I won't mention the competitors, <laughs> but there's like there's two or three others, right? But, well, but yeah, listen, every day somebody else is cropping up, right? And and you know what we find often is you know some other firm is doing a deal. The client then you know in the space, clients then recognize that they don't have cannabis expertise, and so you know I'm working on you know I did two. To public deals where we were essentially, you know, cannabis regulatory counsel, and I'm now working on on two more where you know we're providing the cannabis regulatory, you know, counseling. I think what happens by the end of the deal, the client says, you know, boy, you know, had I had I realized how difficult it was to manage two firms, we would have hired you from the get go. But you know, we were for one reason or another saddled with this other firm, who you know who's willing, you know, to get involved in in the space, but just doesn't have that you know history in the background. 
you guys do a lot of work in helping companies go public. You, you've worked on RTOs, you've worked on IPOs, um, but it feels like the, cannibal, the capital markets are closed, right? Uh, there's this massive capital crunch that is going on. Um, when do you see the window opening again, or will it? I mean, I, it, it, you know, I if I could predict when they were open, I'd be in the wrong business. Um, but I do agree. I mean, I think the I think the volatility in in the public markets has caused a lot of people to sort of step back, and 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 take a look in terms of whether or not they think that the opportunities are still there, certainly in in the public markets, and are they better off investing in in, in private? So you know, we we have seen. You know, and we continue to see a lot of money pouring into into the private space. You know, and you know, a number of our, our clients and and contacts, you know, who you know, were running cannabis funds are now you know raising you know second, third, or fourth fund. Um, the amounts are a lot larger. They're moving more upstream. So rather than being sort of early stage investors, they're going to growth stage, mm-hmm. um, which I think is is a trend that's going to create you know a lot of opportunities for on the buy side for some of these earlier stage companies that won't get capital. But yeah, I mean, it, it is, I think, consistently across the board, people are, are you know, a little wary of the, of the public markets. Um, it, let's talk M&A for a moment. So um, in 2017 and 2018, there was um, a, a mass kind of rush to uh, the Canadian st- uh, Securities Exchange um, or the cannabis stock exchange, whatever yeah, we're yeah, deciding yeah, to yeah, call yeah. it, exactly. <laughs> um, and and you know M and A was like the primary source of, of all of the deal flow. But it seems like a lot of those deals are are blown up and they're not um, you know they're they're not going through. Um, why do you, what do you think is happening here? Uh, rationalization to the market. I mean you know I mean <laughs> you know it. I think everybody will admit that you know that that values were probably you know slightly inflated. Um, slightly. slightly across the board in yeah. Canada and the U.S. I, well, I think everywhere. I mean, I mean, I mean it, it is. You know, if you look at the industry and how they were trading, it you know, it's the, it's the only industry where there was essentially no consistent multiples, and it was you know a multiple of revenue. Right, none of them have none. None of them have have you know have significant. Well, most of them don't have significant EBITDA. No right earnings. Right. I mean, you know, even if you go step up, step up to EBITDA, um, which is sort of a you know, a difficult number to use when, you know, the, the tax number is so high and, and, and nobody is banking on 280 being repealed anytime soon. Um, you know, in my mind, you know, companies are trading at the potential value they might recognize if they fulfill their business plan, um, and, you know, which has a lot of variables in it. And so if you're looking at it on that perspective, you know, you know, it, it, it's difficult to draw any conclusions in terms of what where these companies should be trading, and you know I think recently you're beginning to see more of a sort of a I hate to call it flight to quality because a lot of the <laughs> publics you know you know certainly have quality assets, but I think that you know people view the but if, if you're already public now and you've gone through that bump you know you know where is the where is the growth potential going to come from, and so that you know maybe it maybe it's easier. And, and better value to go, you know, back into the privates where I think the values have come down, you know, you know, equally as much. Um, That's for the investors, right? But if yeah, you're yeah, a public yeah. company, company, like yeah, yeah. you look at you look at Cureleaf or Acre, Cureleaf isn't a good example because they seem to be able to just keep going. But but you look at some of the other companies out there, you know, a GTI, which has, you know, 
dozens and dozens of licenses that they have not yet built out. And it costs anywhere from a million to $2 million to build out a, a dispensary. It costs five or so to build out a manufacturing facility. And it can be as much as $10 million to, to build out a grow. GTI has, you know, half a billion dollars worth of need. Where are these companies that have this amount of money needed to build out their their just their license portfolio going to get it? Yeah, I mean it, it's going to be interesting. I mean I, I'm not sure where it's going to come from, and I don't you know I don't want to talk specifics about. Yeah, I'm not asking about clients, because, right? Yeah, maybe because some of them are clients, but I mean you know I think that I, mean, I think up and down the industry, the you know the lack of capital to build out licenses is really starting to come home. You know I just you know. I see an inordinate number of business plans, you know, coming across my desk. Um, I just had one the other day from a a you know a provincial license holder, you know, who had you know two weeks to complete the build out, or they were going to lose their license. And you know, they woke up, you know, and said, you know, we need you know ten million dollars. Um, and you wrote them a check. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, they. Had, so I think you're going to see more and more of these, you know, either distress deals, you know, ho hopefully, you know, they'll start reaching out way before two weeks because in this industry, you know, you're not going to get a check written in two weeks. But, you know, you know, I think the point is there's a lot of, you know, a lot of licenses out there that are not going to get, you know, become, you know, permanent licenses with the current owners. And they're going to have to have to figure some way to, you know, Un unload them or partner to get these things built. And so, you know, you know, whoever has capital, you know, wherever that might be, I think, you know, I think there's some real opportunities. I think that the problem is going to be, you know, you know, a lot of the capital is now moving away from that pre-revenue business model and, and, and they want to invest into, you know, established companies with, with revenue and, and, and something of a track record. So, you know, I think we're, we're back to the, you know, the, these the are companies value, that yeah. should never have gone public. I mean, well, these are public and private. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think it, I think it's a consistent message. Frankly, it's probably, you know, there probably are ways. It, it'll be easier to raise money if you're public. You know, I hearken back to my old days doing, you know, pipes and reverse mergers, right? And, and um, before I saw the light and started focusing more on, on the private side, but you know, you can structure. A financial equity product where the investor will make money, right? You get a discount, uh, you know, to, to the public market price. You have a reset. You know, the toxic converts. You know, I think some of these companies may be forced down that route, which is horrible. But you know, I mean, it, it's a way to get capital. And and and, you know, if you can use the, if you can deploy the capital in a manner really to drive growth and revenue and drive your stock, pr stock price up, then it's not such a bad instrument. Um, the problem is, you know, with, with shorting and the like, sometimes you get people investing. It's really hard to short these companies, though, because yes. the floats aren't big enough. The lockup periods are still there, so the insiders haven't been able to trade out. Um, you know, Boris Jordan, who's the chairman of Cureleaf, as they were going through their RTO process, said, I would never do this if I had access to the, the traditional debt markets. But because we don't, I have to go to the public markets. If you were talking to the CEO or a chairperson of a private company that needs to access capital, would you be advising them to go public in, in given what you have seen happen in the cannabis industry, or how, what advice would you give them if they needed capital today? 
Um, and so, they're private. Yeah. So, sign, find some really rich friends. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, I, I, it, you know, it's, it's a challenge. I think a lot depends on where, you know, where they are, you know, in, in their business plan, right? If, if they are, you know, pre-revenue, it's getting incredibly difficult. I, you know, I, I think we are beginning to see, you know, the, and, and, and as you rightly you noted that, you know, there is no debt capital available at the moment. We are beginning to see, you know, a little bit of breakage there. I mean, you know, the more and more folks are doing, you know, equipment lending and equipment finance, so you can get sort of the, the, the more mobile of your, of your you know, equipment. It's still hard to finance a HVAC system, which is, you know, really expensive because it gets stuck on the real estate. But, you know, you see, you know, you get real estate lenders who are willing to, you know, willing to rent, lend against the, you know, the real estate. Um, so if, you know, if you're in the build mode, you know, you have that avenue. Um, but that's very expensive capital. Yeah, but it, but it's less expensive than equity. I mean, right? And but yeah, I mean, I mean, capital is expensive. Now, you know, it. You know, you know, I, there have been a couple of debt funds announced recently um, who have some you know interesting you know ways to collateralize their lending. Um, you know, I mean, people are you know, it's it's a field where people are getting you know incredibly creative to come up with ways to solve the, you know the problem. The biggest of which is you know the availability of of capital that, you know, is less than, you know, exorbitant in cost. Um, you, know, it, you know, I mean, I, you know, people could argue, right, if you're, you know, that, that if it's equity capital and it's expensive, but the valuation is really high, then is it really expensive? But, you know, you know, you know, businesses, you know, other than really early stage have always been able to, you know, attempt to leverage, you know, their returns by, by deploying debt alongside the equity. And we just haven't seen that here. Michael, I wanted to pivot over to um, state regulations um, and kind of get an understanding of, um, well, my question is twofold. Which states um, are you working in that, that you think have developed the most business-friendly structure? Um, and then the second follow-up is how are you guys consulting companies on being compliant? Um, so I'll take the second one first because um, it's, <laughs> it's a bit easier. Um, you know, I mean, it, it is... You know, I think that the you know, I mean, one, you know, one, how I'll, do you keep up? <laughs> well, I mean, so like yeah, such so, a moving yeah. target. Well, so that is you know the, the benefit. You know, one of the and the, the more atypical aspects of, of a firm our size, and you know, of the you know, we have you know, eight hundred lawyers in the firm. We have you know, one hundred and sixty lawyers in our cannabis practice, of which say sixty of them are like me are spending at least a quarter of their time. So we have lawyers in you know, in in most of the markets, you know, the larger markets, um, with the exception of Colorado. Um, so we have boots on the ground, you know, who really stay up to date on the both state and equally important sort of, you know, the county and local lo local markets, because right, this is one where, you know, you need, you know, you, you have to make sure that, you know, up and down the chain, you are not losing any of your your licenses for failure to comply with, you know, you know, local zoning, host agreements, or, you know, all the way up to state regulatory. Um, so, you know, so so I think that, you know that really is one of our competitive advantages, and so I leave it right. I'm a I'm a transaction guy, so I lean heavily on you know my colleagues, you know, in you know New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Illinois, Florida, you know, California, you know, you name it. Um, or you know, if they're States where we don't have a local presence, you know, we've you know we have relationships with you know smaller firms who are you know deep into the regulatory. I mean, you look you look at a state like Massachusetts, right, which voted in sixteen to go adult use. It is the end of nineteen. 
um, and there are only a like a tiny yeah, handful. Like six, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So clearly, their regulatory environment is structured to make it less business friendly. And it's not that it's a bad regulatory environment because eventually the state will come fully online, but certain states have done a better job to ease that transition. I look at Nevada, for example, which, you know, like they, they like almost overnight flipped the switch from a medical state to an adult use state and it went seamlessly. And then you look at California and that's a complete shit show. So from your guy's perspective, if you were counseling clients who, who had a portfolio of licenses um, you know, which states would you say, all right, build here first because you'll get online and you'll start to generate revenue? Well, it's a it's a complicated answer because, you know, some I'm of the states. I'm a complicated states, guy. Yeah, yeah, yes. You know, it, it's, <laughs> it, it is a, um, you know, I mean, A, you have to consider that, but you also have to consider, you know, what markets, you know, you know, I mean, it may be business, you know, friendly, but. Is, you know, it's, it's not a large enough market where you really can make a living in the market. I think one of the reasons that everybody, you know, who's who's launching first is launching in California is right as some as quoted to me multiple times. It's the fourth largest economy in the world, so you can right. I mean, you can you don't need to go beyond if you're successful. You don't need to go beyond California. You can be a single state operator and don't face the issues. Of I call bullshit on that thesis because we have we've had clients who have that thesis. We meet with people who have that thesis, and none of them have been successful. Not one client that we have worked with that was single state focused on said, you know what? If we can just dominate California, we can dominate the country. Yeah, but I think it's too early to gauge success. Yeah, what is like? None of these are not been, successful I mean, yeah. I mean, how you yet. success. Yeah. Okay, I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's, not, it's a valid argument. I mean, it. But you know. I mean, yeah. It, you're just taking a yeah. snapshot in time right now. Right. Right. And and you know what? You know what is you know incredibly complicated. You know, as an MSO, is the extent to which you have to replicate infrastructure in every state that you go into. So it's not. You know, you may have to do it to create quote a national brand if such a thing exists. Um, but you know, you know, it, it, it's incredibly expensive, and so if you can, if you can, if 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 you can dominate a large state, you don't have to go anywhere else, right? I mean, right. I mean and, and you have, right? I mean, you have limited capital, so you know, how do you deploy that? So you know, it, it it's, um, you know, so you have that on 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 you know one end, on, on the other side, as you know, as difficult as Massachusetts has been rolling out. You know licenses, and I think you know there's a real bottleneck. You know, I have a I have a client who's been waiting to get the first provisional license to cultivate and extract in within you know Suffolk County, city of Boston. You know, it's been sitting there since July, and you know, and you know, you know, they have the ho they have everything else in place. They're ready to start building, but they're not going to build until they actually you know they've told yes, it's it's going to go. You know, but you know another you know interesting fact that someone you know quoted to me, and you know it, it's you know I'm just relating it, so I can't. Know, you know, verify its accuracy is, you know, there are 10,000 brands in California, there are 100 in Massachusetts. So, you know, if, if your angle is, you know, a brand, you know, where do you, you know, where do you want to be? And do you want to be sort of in the Northeast with limited licenses um, and, and less competition? Or do you want to be in a, you know, a very large state with ideal grow? You know, it, it, it depends it, on who you ask. You ask yeah. Kevin Murphy and he's like, I want to be in the Northeast, right? I don't want the competition. Yeah, yeah. You know, you ask, um, you know, the CEO of Plus and he's like, Psh, I'm all about California. And it's, yeah. it's also the difference between the guys who are saying, I want to be a brand versus I want to be the store. Right. Yeah. You know, that's the MedMen versus can candescent, you know, strategy, which is, you know, something that I also, you know, 
think is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think the other, you know, the the other thing that one has to think about is everybody is saying, you know, have to be vertically integrated, have to be vertically integrated. Um, you know, show me another business, you know, that that is that is successfully vertically integrated because the skill set to do, you know, cultivation, you know, extraction, sale, you know, are completely different. And so, you know, you, you it. It's not necessarily, you know, a guarantee you can be successful being for, and, and maybe you shouldn't. I mean, but yes, that's a regulatory structure, well, I mean, right? But yeah, why yeah. do you think the regulators did that? I mean, I, I have no idea. It, it, you know, I think there there are a number of examples of you know regulators doing things that make no sense. Um, I hope there are no regulators listening, but I mean, you know, it. it, it so, Shalene, <laughs> don't don't pay attention to this. Um, I mean, listen, I, you know, I can, un I mean, I can understand the rationale. That you know, it's easier to regulate if you know if you were regulating one person's seat to sale, and and you know if they have processes in place, you can have some degree of assurance that that it's consistent across you know the, you know the sales channel. Whereas you know if you didn't require it or you, you don't allow it, then all of a sudden you have triple number of people you have to regulate. So part of it may be regulatory ease, but you know I'm trying to think of you know I mean you know I mean. The, the the closest thing I can come to to this industry is probably the wine industry, right? You have a whole bunch of different, you know, vineyards growing, you know, growing wine, but different brands, different tastes, different varietals. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, the I mean, some of them own their grapes, a lot of them don't. I mean, you know, they have they have contracts, so they can, you know, they have quality assurance over. Yeah, their but they product. don't own the liquor stores. Right, right. There's yeah, no yeah, like yeah, Kim yeah, Crawford, yeah, yeah, wine store, which right, I mean, right. so, only in my know, dreams, right? Right. Yeah. They have two out of three, and they don't. You know, in most cases, you know, I mean, yes, a lot of them own their grapes, but a lot of them also buying grapes from other people. Um, you know, and and there are reasons why you know they think they need to own their grapes, but you know. I mean, listen. I have a client in the wine industry who's, who, you know, he buy, you know, he has not, he has no, he has no physical plant, right? He buys his grapes from somebody. He has, he has somebody else. Is it somebody who like I think I know? No. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Is it a guy in town? Because there's a guy no, in town. No, 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 okay. No. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, he, you know, he has, he, he has, you know, a winemaker from another vineyard. You know, do his, do his winemaking. He crushes it at a third party crush. He has a, you know, a mobile bottler come up. You know, and then he has a third party warehouse. So he's just a brand. Yeah. 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 Okay. And, 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 you know, yeah, I mean, yes, he's a brand. I mean, and, and, you, you know. trying to pay, play like Short Hills Geography here? Well, there's, some, there's actually out. a guy in Short Hills who does exactly that, yeah, and he yeah. makes amazing wine. <laughs> yeah, amazing yeah. wine. But, you know, it, you know, I used to say I'm going to compare this, you know, this industry a lot to the beer industry where you're going to have five or six, you know, national brands and a whole bunch of craft ones out there. You know, the more I think about it, I think it's more like the, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the wine industry. But I think, the, I, mean, I think they're parallels. But, you know, and, and, and no one has required any of those businesses to be vertically integrated. So, you know, it, I think it's, a, you know, it's such a new industry that everybody is sort of struggling in terms of the best way to regulate. I mean, it's, you know, the, I think the, you know, the most recent example that I throw out in terms of regulator not, regulators not really understanding the market as well as they should is the whole vaping crisis, right? And if you, if you start banning vaping, what all you're going to do is drive people into the black market. Um, where they're going to get sick, right? Because most of the product is black market product. But, um, you know, it's sort of a public, you know, reaction to the public outcry and regulators thinking, you know, this is the only way they can handle it. Um, so, you know, I think that's... I think the vaping issue is the most complex issue that the industry yeah. has faced oh, because yeah. of exactly what you said. You know, first of all, it's illegal to buy an illegal substance, right? So then they're going to double make it illegal, right? Oh, it's We're going to put you on secret triple probation. It's like, no, that's, that's stupid. 
but getting back to the regulatory structure here, especially in the limited license states, many of them say you can have three or four licenses in each in each category, in, in cultivation, in production, and in, in dispensing. Um, and the, the intent there was to allow minority owners or other non-traditional market participants to have a role, but they are cash constrained. Um, so then we get these managed service agreements, which the regulators are seeing through. So, you know, you look at a lot of these MSOs who have based a large part of their, their valuation on these managed service agreements. You think something's going to happen there that, that like, Massachusetts, you know, Massachusetts has taken a hard look at this. Um, Maryland. Maryland has yeah. taken a hard look at this. So how do you think this plays out? I mean, I think that they're going to look through and see, you know, where the economics are. Right? And if you are, if you have one of these, you know, you know these 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 MSO agreements that MSA agreements that have stripped out the entire profit you know and listen a lot of these were put in place you know the origins of this stuff is when you know you had to be a not-for-profit mm -hmm. that owned the license and therefore you had to figure out you know if you were to invest had to figure out you know a way to do that and so that really carried over you know into this like hmm it works for that let's work for this I think you'll get states that start taking a look at this stuff and you know see if they're really, you know, you know, it's it's fine if your providing services are being fairly compensated to do so. If you are, however, stripping out everything so that the license holder has nothing, yeah, then then I think it's, you know, one has to begin to look and see, is this, you know, is this really a license, um, you know, who, and who the license holder is. But yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I totally agree with you. I mean, the, you know, the, if you are looking at the social justice aspects of this, I mean, none of the people who you want to have the licenses can actually afford uh, one, I, you know, frankly, and I think, you know, this is one area where I think Massachusetts is getting it right when they're looking at delivery. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to allocate the first set of licenses, you know, to that community under the theory that of, you know, of all the, you know, the aspects of the industry, delivery is probably the one that's least capital intensive to roll out. I mean, it's, you know, it's no means, you know, easy. Um, and, you know, and, and you need, you know, you need to find drivers, you need to do background checks, or you need to monitor, you have to have, you know, there's clearly going to be some security insurance. insurance. But, you know, among, you know, among the various, you know, license holders, it's probably the one that's least capital, you know, intensive. And so maybe there are opportunities, you know, to do that. You know, I, you know, to some extent, I, you know, I compare this to, you know, all the set-asides for, you know, you know, the WB, MBE, you know, veterans, and you look at those, right? I mean, the 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 fifty one percent holder, you know, it's a figurehead, right? I mean, and it's you know, I mean, it's 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 you know, if it's an if it's a WBE, you know, it's the husband's business, and he puts his wife in at a fifty one percent holder, um, you know, and then all of a sudden it's you know, it's a WBE, and you know, and they're there in the background, and so you know, you know. I, I think that you're going to see WBE stands for women business enterprise. Women okay, business. I just, I'm just minority. I'm sorry. I, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, yes. yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yes, I tend, you know, lawyers tend to throw out lingo, um, an acronym. So, um, you know, I, you know, I think that you will, you know, you've seen a lot of that, you know, in in this, this industry as people try to capitalize, you know, on on you know whatever they can to be get the most points, you know, in the in the application process. Uh, so you know, so they can win the license. Right? I mean, the licenses are incredibly, you know, expensive but incredibly valuable. I mean, we started to see, you know, people being offered, you know, you know, cash even before they've applied. It's like you know, you 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 are a you know, 
you appear to be a well-qualified applicant. So, you know, we're, you know, if you want, if you go in 5149 with us, you know, we will fund the entire cost, you know, and throw some extra money at you. And this is even before, you know, they've been granted a license. Um, so, you know, it, it, uh, it's an interesting business. Can I ask a follow-up on um, delivery in Massachusetts? Um, do you foresee um, that state going through some of the same headaches that California is going through when it comes to the restrictions that municipalities and towns are are able to say, um, you know, I, I didn't want a dispensary in my town and I don't want to have delivery in my town either, which is, you know, kind of resulting in this cannabis desert, um, you know, especially, you know, in that the middle, you know, chunk of, of the state. Do you see Massachusetts you know, going through those same headaches too. I I don't see how you avoid it, right? If you have a you know a very vocal population in in, in a community that doesn't want it there, um, you know, the same way you can have you know you know dry counties, and I guess you, you know I can't. I mean, liquor delivery is you know I guess state by state, but um, you know I certainly think you're going to get you know you know local ordinances prohibiting it, um, and you're going to wind up with. You know, it's going to wind up in the courts in terms of whether you can, you know, or or can't, and and you know what the what the state is allowed to dictate down to the you know the the counties and the towns and and the like. So, um, I'm, I'm I am I am confident that you're going to see people do it. I can't get a real handle on where it's ultimately going to come out. I mean, it, it, it's you know it, it you know if it's a product that you're consuming in your home, right? They're not. You know, these places are not banning you from, you know, buying a bottle of wine and bringing it into your home. And they're not banning you from going, you know, going, you know, to another county and buying pot and consuming it in your home. So it's hard to imagine the legitimate interest other than just making it really difficult, you know, for you to have stuff delivered to your home. I want to go back to money for a second. Uh, A lot of the the public companies and even some of the private companies who are involved and, and are license holders are, are just running out of money. Um, and because cannabis is still federally illegal, they can't go bankrupt, right? Bankruptcy is a federal structure. So what happens if an MSO who has licenses in multiple states literally runs out of money and they can't get Chapter 11 or Chapter 7 bankruptcy protections? What, what's going to happen there? It's, you know, it's a really good question. I mean, you know, it, it, you know I think, you know, it's partially going to be a function of where you know, you know, I mean, right? Your bankruptcy, you can't pay your debts when they come due, right? So first, you have to look and see what, given given the lack of available credit, you know, the the, the debt holders are going to be, you know, essentially vendors. Um, so you don't have the or Gotham Green or or yeah, yeah, Torian yeah, 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 yeah. or I mean, there are there's some ABL guys out there, but yeah, like yeah, Gotham yeah. Green, Gotham Green basically has a sort of Damocles hanging over MedMen, right? Yeah. Yeah. They will take the licenses from MedMen, but if you're but they can't take the licenses because they can't right so I mean, exactly they, they, so they like how does this work out so, so right so um, I mean yeah there you know you can, if you are in a single state I, you could attempt to work your way through your state you know creditor rights laws um, I think ultimately what happens is you, you you know these are all done you know as out of court settlements with you know with every single major creditor. And then you let the little ones, you know, sue you and figure out. But it, I mean, it's going to be a mess. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I think that the, 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 the good news is in most of these situations, you know, the large investor has so much money at stake that 
if they think that they're, you know, this is salvageable, you know, you know, they will figure out a way to infuse some more cash into the business um, to keep it alive. You know, the end result may be, you know, that they wind up with, with you know, an incredibly overwhelming stake in the company because they're the only ones willing to put more money in. Instead of putting it in a $300 million valuation, they're putting it in at $20 million. Um, you know, they're going to dilute the hell out of everybody else. Right. Um, you know, that may spawn a lot more legal work on the litigation side as people are challenging insider and dealing. And I can see you licking your lips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it, you know, you know, this is, you know, every aspect of this industry is incredibly complicated. And if you pull a string in one direction, you know, something unravels, you know, somewhere else. Um, Does safe banking address the concept of bankruptcy? I, I, I'm not I don't believe so. I mean, I, you know, it, it um, you know, I, I, I frankly haven't spent a whole lot of time studying it because, you know, what what ultimately comes out of the Senate, if ever, is it'll look nothing like, you know, what came out of the House. I mean, it, so so yeah, one can speculate, you know, and frankly, I think, you know, I, you know, I think that, you know, all the Safe Banking Bank Act is really going to do short term is make it easier for people to deposit cash. You know, it's not I don't think it's going to create a great lending market because these businesses are not ones that even if it was not fairly illegal, would lend money to, right? They're all highly speculative. They don't have free cash flow. Um, no, no bank would ever lend to this business, right? Banks lend to businesses that don't need money. Um, these businesses need money, and they have no way to pay it back short term. Or so, collateralize yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but I mean, I mean, assuming it was fully, fully legal and the licenses were transferable and all that stuff, right, even still, right, I mean, you know, Banks do not normally go in into a you know to a loan to own scenario. Um, I think ultimately you will get you know you know mezzanine lenders and sort of other credit providers you know who you know won't mind owning the asset if things go bad. Will charge you know incredibly high risk premiums, um, you know, to lend money, you know, if they can figure out ways to to collateralize them to protect them on the downside, which I think is sort of the, you know the the, the you know, we're starting to see it in real estate and and. Because of it, actually, the real estate premiums on cannabis lending have come down a bit because there are enough people now willing to lend, you know, into into the industry. Um, and so, you know, as supply catches up with demand, you know, you can you can charge less because they can go to somebody else. But you know, there you're lending in a building, and so, I mean, yeah, if you can't put in another cannabis thing, you can repurpose it for something else. I mean, you know, it may not be ideal, but the real estate's not going away. The companies that went public over the last couple of years um, have done it with these, you know, really unique structures when it comes to different share classes. Um, who what that favor founders over, um, you know, everyday investors. Um, you know, for example, MedMen. What is your take on that? Um, you know, we're doing one right now. I mean, it. You know, it is. It, it's not. It's nothing new. I mean, if you look at a lot of, you know, a number of the tech companies that, you know, non-cannabis tech companies that like have gone Uber. public, yeah, you know, I mean, Comcast. I mean, you know, they, I mean, a lot of them have, you know, uh, you know, um, you know, you know, MTV. You know, I mean, those folks. I mean, that you know, it, the control has always rest. You know, they do, you know, two classes. One that has incredibly high, you know, voting rights. You know, to embed, you know. The, you know, the founders with control forever. Um, you know, the, the Canadian publics and some, you know, can and cannot be different. Some of them, particularly the ones that, you know, the ones that have gone public in Canada to avoid, um, be, you know, for securities laws being deemed to be U.S. issuers often wind up with the reverse problem where you have the founders with lower voting stock 
so that the U.S. person, you know, the U.S. persons don't own a majority. So, you know, it, it, people, it's one of the reasons we're starting to see people question whether or not, you know, the CSE is the right place to go public if you have U.S. assets and are beginning to look to the over-the-counter market because then you don't have to jump through all these incredibly difficult hoops. Yeah, but you can't raise as much on the OTC as you can in, uh, in Canada. Well, I mean, you know, that's to be seen. I mean, you know, that, I mean, the, the, there is no liquidity on the CSE. And so, you know, I mean, you know. Richard Carlton, don't listen to him. Yeah, yeah. There's plenty of liquidity. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, you know, there is a, you know, if, if, you, if you do a reverse merger into a Canadian shell, you know, there's an exit tax to leave Canada that no one talks about. Um, I mean, listen, there certainly are opportunities. Oh, really? Yeah, yes. I, I can't tell you what it is other than the, you know, the Canadian lawyers we work with say it's, it's large enough that it's prohibitive. And so if you, if you are a Canadian domicile company, you will be one for the rest of your life. Um, huh. Yeah, it, it, no one talks about that. Um, so, you know, you have well, to think. Well, you did. Thank you for yeah, doing that. You're welcome. <laughs> I, can't, I can't give you any of the specifics because um, we haven't sort of delved down because, you know, at the point, in, you know, the ones that we were working with had already made that commitment. So, but, but if these, so, so for yeah. example, the companies that went RTO on the CSE want to, and, and, and for some, next year, you know, states pass, states act for, or safe banking act passes. They'll do with, a list. They'll, do, yeah, they'll they double, they'll yeah, uplist yeah. to the NASDAQ or they'll uplist yeah. and they'll do yeah. a list, but they'll stay on the CSE. Well, I mean, you, you could stay, you don't necessarily have to stay on the CSE. I mean, you just could trade here. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you know you'll, you'll always be a Canadian issuer. And, you know, that means you have, you know, you're going to have to comply with both, you know, Canadian and U.S. securities laws. So, you, you know, you have to, you know, have gap financials and interest financials. You have to have you know, everything you do looked at by both U.S. And, and Canadian securities lawyers. So it substantially increases your compliance costs to, you know, to be in Canada, you know, if you're also going to list in the U.S. So I want to get a little sexy here. And talk corporate governance, yeah. okay? Because when, when I think sex appeal, I think corporate governance. Um, Danny Moses, who is a well-known investor, a friend of the podcast, uh, and also a personal friend, you know, he, his number one indicator of whether he's going to invest in a company or not is looking at the corporate governance structure of the companies that he's looking at. There are some real big corporate governance issues in the cannabis industry. Is there stuff that you're seeing that you're advising clients saying, guys, that's not kosher, or maybe you want to rethink it? Like when you think about corporate governance, you know, how are you talking to your clients about it? I mean, yes, I mean it's it's a it's a fair point, and and I totally agree. You know, I mean, you know, you have to look at where the management of these companies came from, right? You know, if they are, um, you know, as a lot of them are, Wall Street guys. You know, who have previously been involved with public companies, they get it. You know, and they want to institute the same corporate governance, you know, policies that, you know, you would see it. You know, at, at any, any other publicly traded company. You know, I think the issue is a lot of these companies are started by people who have no public company experience. Um, they've been in the industry a long time, which already tells you something, right? I mean, it's you know, these are people who are operating in in a legal in an illegal it's environment. The gray market. Yes, they, yes, right. Yeah, they're operating in a gray market. And so they take that gunslinger approach to them into the, into the public markets, um, you know. And, and listen, you're starting to you know you, you'll you'll start to see you know the you know ramifications of that as as you know you know as things you know develop and you know and the, and they are taking actions that you know if you know if not illegal are certainly you know counter to what you know good corporate citizens want to see, and it'll you know it'll impact. 
you know, both their share price and their management, right? I mean, I, I expect a lot of these companies will see, you know, as they, be, as they try to raise their next rounds, will see turnover in management, you know, to the extent that the people there are not, don't have, you know, public company experience. And I think, you know, I think in this industry, it's vitally important that, you, that your management team, you know, you know, they don't all have to be, but you have to have people at the top, you know, who have who have that kind of experience because, I mean, you're running a public company and it's, you know, it's very different than running, you know, a, you know, a private company. But even, in, you know, in the private company, I think, you know, it, yeah, you have to recognize, you know, where some of these people's backgrounds are and, you know, th they tend not to be, you know, rule followers, otherwise they wouldn't be in this business in the first place. 2017 into 2018 was the year of the RTO. 2018 into 2019 was the year of the M&A. Do you think that 19 going into 20 will be the year of the management turnover, that we'll see significant turnover at, at many of the MSOs? Because most of them were started by financial operators and not necessarily operators. I mean, the ones that have the, the operators that come out of the illicit market, you know, don't necessarily know how to run a public company. And the boards are going to start to get furious, not necessarily at the lack of, of top-line growth, but, you know, as the share prices plummet, and, and, you know, most of these companies are off 60% for the year, you know, the boards have a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders to push management, even with the supermajority voting rights. You know, are we going to, do you think that we're going to see big turnovers at some of these companies? I'm not asking you to name names. No, no, I mean, you know, it is, I mean, I, I, mean, I do think it's going to happen for one of two reasons. One is, yeah, I mean, boards are going to be under under pressure, um, you know, both because of, of stock performance and they have to do something, you know, as well as, you know, if, if you know, if missteps are taken by management, you know, they, they may have no choice. I also do think that we are going to see significant consolidation in the industry. And, you know, one of the reasons for consolidation you know, and this applies equally probably to public and private, is to acquire, you know, human capital, right? I mean, it, it's, you know, we're doing one now, you know, that happens to be, you know, a distressed acquisition in, in California where our client is buying, you know, a company at a, you know, at a valuation that's a lot less than the, you know, the last round that they raised money at. Um, and they essentially said, you know, we're buying this company for really three, you know, three reasons. You know, you, you know we want their people, you know, you know, we want their their brands um, and their genetics. You know, the, the the licenses are a distant fourth because there you know there's some duplication. But um, you, know, you know, I mean, I think that I mean, you know, it's it, it's difficult to to find quality human capital, and you know, I mean, there'll be a consolidation anyway. But I think that will be one of the drivers. Is you know, this is you know, this person has built a great company. Look, we really could use them. That's why forefront. Merged with Canex, right? Because they forefront looked at what Canex was doing in Washington State and said these guys know how to grow better than anybody else. They know how to make better products, and in a hyper competitive market, they have an almost ten percent market share. We can take that and put it across our entire portfolio. Um, and if you talk with Josh Rosen or you talk with Chris Crane, they say that you know they think that they're going to win because of that operational excellence that they bought in Canex. Yes, and we represented Canex in that deal, so obviously they thought the same way, right? I mean, it's been, you know, you do want to align with who you think the, the you know, the, the survivors are here. And, you know, it is a, I mean, I think everybody agrees that there are probably too many companies out there. Um, and everybody is positioning themselves. It's still themselves. so early, though, you yeah. know I mean? Well, but I mean, I think when the, you know, 
in I'm not just necessarily saying you know public. I think you know there are, there are a lot of companies. That, I mean, this industry probably can't support long term the I don't know how many cannabis companies there are out there. Hundreds um, and hundreds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And I think you know you know most people are you know are building their company. You know, I mean, they're either going to you know buy or be bought, and you know and, and you know it all sort of depend upon you know you know what the offers are on the table and is it time to cash out or is it time to go on a you know a buying spree with equity so you don't have to spend cash and you know one plus one equals three that yeah, that's what i mean yeah. that's what cureleaf has been doing like yeah, you look yeah. at the grassroots deal right you know that was all equity it was a billion five a billion two nine and i don't know what the value of the deal is today but you yeah, know they yeah. they bought it with equity and yeah, that's yeah, that yeah. was and they did the same same thing with select right so you know they've been very smart at at saving their cash and using it to open up stores. Um, all right, and your turn. I keep talking. <laughs> to to the surprise of no one. <laughs> <laughs> you should hear him on the train. I mean, it's you know by the by, by so the end of sorry, our forty five minutes, we have people I mean, surrounding. I mean, I three thousand miles. Yeah. So yeah. And I, that's actually yeah. true. Yeah. It has happened that there have been times that Michael and I will be on the train, and there will be people standing around us listening, wrapped because we are talking about this industry. And then we start getting questions, much like this. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's continue on the the capital. Um, trend and you know we've talked about the debt equity um, we haven't really talked about the sale lease buybacks which is kind of a new trend now what do you think is coming up next where's the the growth in operating capital coming from in the next uh, 12 to 18 months um, Lewis is going to start or writing large checks than that. <laughs> 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 um, I mean I think it will continue to a large extent come from you know the you know yeah and, and I'm talking sort of pre, you know, pre-States Act or something that, that you know, opens up the, the, you know, the industry to the institutional investor. Um, you, know, you know, I think, you know, you know, again, an interesting statistic that, you know, I can't vouch for, but 75% of the money in funding the industry has come from family offices. Um, I think you will continue to see them, you know, you know put money into this space. Um, you know, I think that they will, you know, they, like a lot of the other money, will, will become smarter about where they want to deploy and either will, you know, invest into funds or will invest in the companies that, you know, have, you know, are, are further along in their business plans. Um, you know, I think that, and I can't tell you which one, but there will be some institutional investor who takes the plunge because they just, you know, they just. I'm going to bet on BlackRock. Yeah. But that's me. Yeah, I mean, it could, it could yeah. be right on from the real estate angle, yeah. particularly, right? I mean, it's, I mean, there there are safer ways to get into this space, in, you know, in people's mind. I don't necessarily agree. You know, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think it's a highly risky industry from a, from from how they view it as, you know, as enforcement. Um, but I, you know, I do think you'll, you know, and and once one of them does it, I think it will start, you know, the, open the floodgates. I, you know, I heard, you know, anecdotally that a one of the Midwest state pension plans has put money into a cannabis fund. I haven't been able to verify that yet. Um, that would be very interesting. Um, and I, you know, and I think you will begin to f people like, you know, like Torian, you know, will figure out ways, you know, to create, you know, debt instruments where they, where, where they're protected. You know, it's difficult. Um, but I think, you know, people are very creative in this space. And, you know, I, I, you know, it's, you know, one thing is for sure, you know, if there's an opportunity 
and people ha- and, and someone has money, they're going to find a way to put that money to work if they want to. And it's, you know, a lot of this, I think, is sort of educating the investor public in terms of, you know, you know, you know, what the risk really is and what they should be concerned about and not, you know, hide behind the, well, it's a, you know, A, it's a sin product or B, it's, a, it's fairly illegal. So we've been we've taken a lot of your time and you've been really generous. We've got two more questions. Um, let's talk about failure. Right. I, I always ask this question because I really believe that success comes from understanding how you have failed in the past and you are clearly a successful guy. Um, so can you talk about either a personal or professional failure that shaped you and, and catapulted you forward into becoming so successful? Absolutely. So, I mean, this one for me is relatively easy to, to, to pinpoint because um, it really did change the way I practice law. I had in, I guess, 1998, I took a, a one of my clients public and they were one of the early adopters of desktop video conferencing. Um, you know, back in the days when you could do small IPOs, we did one, you know, 40 million. Um, you know, the, 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 the the company quickly began to tank after the public offering because all these, you know, everybody else came out, you know, with products, including, you know, this small company called Microsoft. <laughs> um, and so my, you know, my, my client slash, you know, founder slash CEO decided, you know, he didn't want to be part of a public company anyway. So he went off, you know, in 1998 to start a, you know, a startup in the telecom space providing essentially private non-dial tone you know, private data networks to, you know, to medium-sized businesses in Class A office buildings to provide them with things like high-speed internet and, you know, what is coming out com- commonplace, you know, IPTV and, you know, and IP telephony and data storage and data backup, which then, you know, was fairly difficult for a small enterprise because, you know, if, if, you know, most of them had dial tone, you know, you know, dial up and if not the DSL. And so, um, he convinced me after he raised $4 million to come join him as his chief, chief counsel um, and chief operating officer. And, you know, things went really well for a year. Um, and then, you know, 9-11 happened. Um, we couldn't raise any more money. And, you know, I was stuck at a, you know, a startup that couldn't pay payroll, um, you know, that couldn't pay vendors. Um, but you know, it also you know early on it taught me you know the the and and you know the lawyers who were listening to this will understand it. Most others won't. The first thing he said to me when I joined him was, you know, you have to we have to reorient your your mindset because you're going from a revenue line item at a law firm where you bill by the hour to an expense item where you know you need to justify yourself in a whole bunch of different ways. But that doesn't include you know billing hours, and so you have to be you know productive you know in in whole different ways. But, you know, yeah, on the PR side, we have no idea what that means. Yeah, 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 I'm kidding. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, it's I, the yeah, same yeah, exact yeah, yeah, model, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But when, right, but if you, if you went in-house to a, to a brand, right, it would be very different, right? You're not yeah. billing. Um, but, you know, going through, you know, an organization, particularly as it was failing and we had incredibly limited resources, I really was forced, you know, to, um, you know, reorient, you know, the entire way I practiced law. Um, and it was incredibly difficult to, you know, to go through a failing, you know, enterprise, you know, partially of which, you know, you know, I mean, we all sort of took it upon ourselves as, as partial reasons why, you know, it failed because, you know, had we done things differently, you know, you know, I probably wouldn't have been sitting here today and I would have been counting, you know, my equity. But, um, you know, it, you know, I do, I really do believe in the, in the adage, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. 
Final question. Um, and again, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, I mean, we. And you're not billing uh, us for this hour, right? No, and, and, you know, and Lewis well knows it's like, you know, it, it is amazing how all of a sudden I'm, you know, I'm the cool person in the neighborhood, right? I mean, you know, Lewis and I talk about it all the time. People who would never give us the time of day now want to spend hours with us talking about cannabis. So, you know, I, I am, I, you know, it's. It, it, that I'm, was the biggest backhanded compliment I think I've ever gotten. <laughs> it's like, Lewis, you are such a complete nerd, but because you're in the cannabis space, people like you. Well, same thing with me. <laughs> Yeah, my, my, yeah. Now, my kids now think I'm cool again, right? My my no, my kids do not think oh, I'm cool. No. Well, my oh. kids are older, right? Oh, okay. you know, my, my my kids are consumers of the product. So, um, but yeah, I'm, you know, it's you know, my wife walks around and my husband's a pot lawyer. I mean, it's pretty funny. <laughs> and I've That's seen her amazing. wear the T-shirt that yeah. says that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that really a T-shirt? No, yeah, no, 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 no. Oh, yeah. sorry, I mean, Ann. I interrupted. Cool. You. See, that's the bad dad joke in the cannabis capital markets culture and bad dad jokes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we always end the pod with a question. Um, you know, like we said, we're in PR, so we we think about life and headlines. Um, you know, if you were to open up the front page of the Wall Street Journal tomorrow and see a positive story on this industry, what do you want that positive story to be? Or what do you think that the that the mainstream media is missing in the world of cannabis? Wow. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, and, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily mainstream media or just the industry in general. The, 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 the lack of education for the consuming public and the industry, right? I mean, I mean you know, there is no um, consistency in, in delivery of message in terms of, you know, of usage of product, dosage of product, what does what. Um, and so the consumer is really left to figure out on a trial and error basis, which never is, you know, which is never a good end result for any industry, right? I mean, you you want to have an, you know, the the better educated your customer is, the better they can be an advocate for your product. Um, when when you, you know, when you as a consumer have no idea what you're buying, when you walk into a a, a dispensary and the salesperson has no idea what the product is that they sell or, you know, which does what to whom, you know, it's, it's, it's never a good thing. And so, you know, I mean, I think this is, you know, I would love for this industry, you know, to, to grow up faster than it has and start regulating itself. And it's growing fast. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and listen, I mean, and, and, and they're clearly growing pains and, it, and, you know, there's a lot of money there. It will, there are a lot of really smart people. It will get there. Um, and so, you know, I know it's really not the answer to the to the to the question, but I think that's sort of the you know one one of the things that I struggle with is you know how you know how we because we be very much like like you guys view ourselves as stewards of this industry um, and do a lot you know you know that is not necessarily driven to our bottom line to help the industry grow. Um, so I would love for somebody out there to start a education you know program to educate the you know all all parties in the in the industry. Awesome. I got to ask one other question. So when we were early, you know, we've been in this space for five, six years um, officially. In the early days, we got paid in cash and, and occasionally somebody offered to pay us in kind. What was the strangest way that you guys ever got offered to get and in kind, you know, literally kind bud is what yeah. I meant. So like, how have you been? You know, Everybody it, knew what you meant, Lewis. Yes. <laughs> that joke. Yeah, yeah. Dad joke. Okay. Um, fortunately, I have never, you know, the, you know, the, the, the jokes that we, or the questions we always get asked, 
I think you know only half you know only half ingest or will there be free samples? Because you know, <laughs> we you know we host a lot of events. Yeah, we get um, all the time. Right. I mean, I you know I think that you know are there. <laughs> I guess it depends where. No, we never have free samples at our events. We have people trying to listlessly pass out free samples, which is a whole other issue. Um, but you know, it is. You we, slapped me on the hand once, just well, once. <laughs> the we, I, I, I must say, I have never been offered anything. I've ne- never been offered to be paid in cash or in kind. Um, you know, you know, we you know we always get paid. You know, we send out invoices. The money shows up in our right now in our bank account by check or wire transfer. I mean, fortunately, yeah, you, um, don't want, you don't want to no. fuck with your lawyer. No. Well, and it's also you know I, you know I think that we, you know, we 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 have gotten and have always been as I said at at, at the top of the show, you know, very cautious about the clients that we're we're you know bringing in, and so you know we would not bring in one you know that didn't have a bank account. You know, and 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 was collecting cash. It's just not, you know, you know, we're we're probably not at at that stage of their existence. Not the right firm for them. And they're better off with one of these boutiques, and they can figure out with that boutique how they're gonna to pay them. But I, you know, I don't think I've actually ever run across, you know, outside of the, you know, the criminal defense lawyers, you know, anybody who's actually had an issue with, you know, I mean, we may have issues of whether we get paid, but not a not an issue of how we get paid. And if if they're gonna pay us, you know, they figured out ways to, you know, send us. You know, money via the you know, you know via via the banking system. All right, thank you so much. Oh, it was my I pleasure. Really appreciated that. Um, if people want to find you, where's the best ways to find you? Um, you can you know you can go to the, the the firm website if you can't remember the spelling of my name and email. Uh, you know, my firm is Dwayne Morris D U A N E M O R R I S dot com. Um, you can email me. It's probably the best way to reach me at mdschwamm, that's S-C-H-W-A-M-M, at dwaynemorris.com. Awesome. So our Thank th- you, Michael. My pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Our thanks to Michael Schwamm, partner uh, in the cannabis practice at Dwayne Morris. I do other things as well. It's only a third of my time. <laughs> <laughs> um, as always, thank you for listening. Um, if you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. You can always drop us an email. Shoot me some hate mail. I love getting it. You can do that to Green Rush at KCSA. As always, we are looking for feedback and guest ideas. And don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. Truly one take. <laughs>